It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When Ray came out with this box of clothes, I was quite staggered because I never imagined for one minute that the clothes of a convicted murder would be given back to the family. So I, I looked through it. Ray says, saying, so, so, what, so what do you think? I said, well, this was a, a, a crazy, brutal attack. And he said, yeah, so where's the blood? This was a young girl, a young woman, who had been brutally attacked in a graveyard in Bakewell, which is not the height of crime, in the 70s, which was virtually unheard of. This was a significant event, and I think for the people of Bakewell, it was a significant event, and that's why it kind of became imprinted on their memories. I was quite shocked at the way Wendy Sue was portrayed. I think there was a lot of, of assumptions about her. She was judged, I think. I mean, if, if he hadn't made a confession on that day, it would have been a completely different story. They made such a pig's ear of it to start with, you see. They didn't think that attack on her was going to be a murder. I think sometimes people had lost sight of the fact that she was a victim and she was somebody who died. In a way, she was, she was just sort of that was the event rather than thinking of her as a human being I think there was I felt that she'd sort of been ignored in a way At the end of episode one we left journalist Don Hale in Stephen Downing's childhood home in Bakewell a small market town in Derbyshire in the north of England It was 1994 Don had a box of Stephen's clothes stained with Wendy Saul's blood from the day that she was brutally attacked in the town's graveyard 20 years previously. He also had a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, you couldn't deal with it in one go. It was, you know, it was a saga. It was, you know, literally a, a massive jigsaw scattered around the playground, really. And you've got to put one picture together before you can move on to another and to another and to another. And gradually the whole thing starts to come together. But... <laughs> It was pretty obvious it was going to be many months of, of hard work to get to a situation where you can make a decision as to one, is there a case to answer? Is he innocent? Is he guilty? Because I wasn't convinced at that stage, one way or the other. 
This is Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard. Well, when, when Ray came out with this box of clothes, I was quite staggered because I'd, I never imagined for one minute that uh, the clothes of a convicted murder would be given back to the family. And I thought, well, surely they would remain as evidence with the police. I, he also showed me the photographs from the mortuary, you know, of, of the victim to show how badly injured she was. They're given to the prisoner to, to show them, to make them, to shock them, really, into admitting this is what you've done. When Stephen's dad, Ray, produced the box, Don was both surprised, as she would be, and intrigued. This was a this was a vicious, violent attack. And, and I, I'm looking at this, and it's got a, like a yellow T-shirt. And the, the only way you could, you, could, um, you could identify that these were bloodstains was because they got sort of markers put on by the forensic people around each bloodstain. Don's keen to stress that he is not an expert on blood spatter analysis. So I'll discuss the possible implications of these blood patterns with an actual forensic expert later in the episode. The jeans were quite heavily bloodstained about the knee. Uh, that was quite a dark patch that was sort of hard and, and rigid over it. Because you're talking now 21 years later. The actual T-shirt, and I'm holding it up to the light sort of thing, and Ray's sort of saying, so, so, what, what, so what do you think? I said, well, this was a, a, a crazy, brutal attack. So where's the blood? I'm having to agree with him, really, because I said, well, the only things I can see are these, these markers. He said, that's all they, all they could find. And most of the ones that were on there, um, I couldn't... There were little marks with, where the forensic people had marked the circle or square or whatever it was to identify that. But I couldn't see that because it was so minute. You could only see it under a microscope. Don wasn't yet entirely convinced about Ray's story, that his son was innocent, but he was certain enough to think that the case deserved a little bit more investigation. The whole thing seemed to be based purely and simply on what the police thought had happened at that time and what they forced out of Stephen in the confession. It seemed to Don that the best place to start was the case of the prosecution, the police's evidence that had convicted Stephen 20 years before. What are these pictures we've got up here? That's um, Ray and his, his wife, we need to display in the boots and clothing worn by son Stephen on the day of the incident because they had his clothing. And we did um, get the information from the... We got the file from the Home Office with the um, the sort of notes and the autopsy and the pictures and everything um, later on. So we, we were looking through all those. I'm Lucy Ditchmont, the producer of the series, reporter, Murder in the Graveyard. Don left Derbyshire and retired to North Wales some years ago with his wife, Cathy. I spent several days visiting Don in his home stroke office, high above the beaches and the beautiful Conway Sound. We talked in great detail about the years he'd spent investigating this case, his unorthodox methods and the holes in the prosecution case that emerged when he began to look deeper into it. Tell me about the official report of the murder. What what was the case for the prosecution? Well, it was fairly limited, really. Was, I, I, in my opinion, it was mainly circumstantial evidence. The evidence against Stephen was mainly the confession he'd made on the day of the attack. And it seemed to be more as a concoction from what the police thought had probably happened rather than actual fact. Because at that stage, I mean, 
all we got really is that a, a young woman had been brutally attacked in a Bakewell Cemetery with a pickaxe handle. Um, so the most they could have classed it was at the time would, would have been a um, GBH, really. Now, the police have always sort of classed it as a murder from sort of day one, in a sense, that Stephen admitted or confessed to the murder of Wendy Sewell on that day, which is, is incorrect because she didn't die for two days later. But there were a number of things that, that sort of struck out from that because obviously the pathology report and the uh, or the medical reports on the victim couldn't really have happened until afterwards, until she died, which was, say, two or three days later. And when they came in, that should have put a red flag up, in my opinion, uh, to say that uh, the confession that got out of Stephen didn't make sense. It didn't match the known facts of the case. And it was things, points like this that sort of uh, whet my appetite in terms of saying, well, how on earth could they have convicted him on the evidence that they had? Oh, OK, now we're right. So this is it. Okay, right, so... So Don identified three main problems with the conviction. The witness statements, or rather the lack of them, the forensics and Stephen's confession. On this story, a main plank of the prosecution evidence at the time of the trial was the statement of admission made by the accused and signed over and over again. The prosecution seemed certain that Stephen Downing attacked Mrs Sill before leaving the cemetery for his break. In his admission, Downing said he hit her twice with a pickaxe handle and then sexually assaulted her. Mrs Sill was in fact hit seven or eight times with a pickaxe handle. Forensic tests identified ten lacerations to her skull but without any details of sexual assault. At the time of the admission, Downing only faced a potential charge of assault, and this came after more than nine hours of constant questioning without a solicitor at Batewell Police Station, where in trial notes he claimed he was shaken by the shoulders and to be kept awake. Downing stated that he was tired, hungry and in pain from a severe spinal condition. At the time, he was on medication and often had to lie down for a while to ease his pain. On the day in question, he had only just returned to work after following two days sick leave. His admission came at about 1.30am amidst warnings that he could be there all night and amidst allegations that officers were betting that he would admit the offence before the night was out. In later statements, Downing said the written statement was untrue and I made it because they wouldn't would question me all night. Two days later, Mrs Sewell died from her injuries and the charge was changed to murder. Downing retracted his statement 13 days later whilst on remand at Risley after breaking down, saying he couldn't hide the truth any longer. Right, and this, this really was the story. Did you, did you write this? No, that was um, Dom wrote the stories. Um, I um, helped sort of do the secretarial work of putting things in boxes and files and things in the office so when uh, letters and things came in and he'd found information i used to put them in uh, folders and stuff and help sort of keep his notes in some semblance of order according to don as he said in that article that he wrote for the matlock mercury the problem with stephen's confession was what it said what stephen had actually confessed to how the police had actually extracted the confession from him and if Stephen was capable of making the confession in the first place. Should the judge at the trial have allowed the prosecution to omit Stephen's confession as evidence at all? And obviously things are different now to what they were in 1973, but uh, to be interviewed uh, without caution, without a witness, without any sort of family support or solicitor. Because I think it's worth, worth bringing home that point, because how, how was he interviewed? There were, I mean, it was quite, it's quite shocking when you read how the police treated... Well, the, well that, the, that's right. I mean, he, he was there for, for eight to nine hours, 
you know, denied access to, to I say, solicitors, friends, uh, support, family, anything. He was badgered constantly by a number of detectives uh, who took it in turns to interview him and were, were grilling him, really, and, and really putting in his head what they thought had happened and trying to say, look, make it easy on yourself, just confess. Uh, this is, you know, if if, um, if Wendy's still alive, um, she'll be able to tell us tomorrow that it's all a mistake and it wasn't you, etc., and putting these thoughts into his head. And, you know, eventually he, he, he was forced into a confession, um, really to get them off his back, because he kept being told, look, if you just say you've done it, you know, that's the end of it, you'll be able to rest. We now know that he had a, an abscess in, in his, uh, at the bottom of his back, base of his back, which was giving him severe pain. An abscess. Um, he, he, he'd been in constant pain for that. Um, he was very young, he was very confused. He, he, I would say he's had these learning difficulties. He was a young child, really, in an adult position, being pressured and bullied into admitting something that he obviously hadn't done. So he was described then as a plump youth, five foot six inches tall and some three inches shorter than Wendy Sewell, who was believed to hold a black belt at judo. He weighed 14 stones and was a poor scholar with a very low IQ and was reading ability of an 11 year old. The statement was allegedly written in pencil and later read back to him. Downing was ashamed of his reading and spelling ability and signed to end his torment, a claim supported by Dr J Wilkinson, assistant psychologist from Pastures Hospital, Micklover, on behalf of the Home Office. And so when it came down to the confession, really the police had wrote this for him they, on what they thought at that time had probably happened. And they had him that he'd hit this, this, this woman uh, twice on the back of the head knocked her down and, and started to undress her, making it like, like a sexual assault. That was the reason, supposedly, for the, for the attack. The transcripts, or rather the partial transcripts of Stephen's trial, show that the judge directed the jury really clearly not to accept the confession if they felt it had been forced out of Stephen in any way. So, Ed, what are you looking at there? I'm looking at the transcript of the trial of Stephen Downing took place in Nottingham Crown Court between the 13th to the 15th of February 1974. It was before the Honourable Mr Justice Neild. Very short, very short trial. Can we just have a look at this section of the summing up from the judge? Yeah. One of the main planks of the prosecution case is a statement made by the accused and signed over and over again. And so it is necessary for me to point out that in such circumstances it is for the Crown to establish that such a statement, indeed an oral statement, as well as a written one, was voluntarily made by the accused to satisfy you that it was voluntarily made and accurately recorded. So voluntary, that, that's, what, yeah. that's what you're stressing there? Well, I think voluntary is the important word okay, here. Okay, on. Perhaps the best way to explain the matter to you is to quote this statement. It must be shown to be voluntary in the sense that it has not been obtained from the accused by fear of prejudice or hope of advantage or by oppression, which, of course, is the general test. If you thought or were satisfied that there had been oppression, any improper conduct by the police to induce this young man to make a statement or to threaten him if he did not, such and such things would happen, then the statements are valueless. The statements are valueless. So if there's been any oppression, then the confession is valueless. How does he continue? To complete this section of my summing up, 
you will notice on the original written statement the formal words at the beginning, the formal words at the end and you may, I think, take it that this is all designed to make sure that the statement is voluntary so that the accused person thereafter may be shown he has signed it in various places. Sign the certificate at the end and, in other words, given a good chance of altering it if he wants to. Well, so much for that. Right, so what? So the judge is saying if, if the jury feels that the confession has been obtained under duress or oppression, as they, the terminology they use, it is valueless. And the judge has also pointed out that the structure of an official statement is that the, the, the person making the statement signs it at the top, signs it at the bottom, and then at various points to qualify that this is true and that Stephen had done that. He'd signed it at the top, the bottom, and all the way through to say, this is what happened. Even according to Don, the statement was written in pencil and signed in pen. That is correct. The jury at Nottingham Crown Court convicted Stephen after just one hour of deliberation. And although Stephen Downing withdrew his confession before the trial, in court it was still used as the main evidence for the prosecution. To make matters more confusing, Stephen first withdrew just the omission of murder, 13 days after the attack. He then retracted the confession of sexual assault, later still. For Don, there were also doubts raised by the discrepancies between what Stephen had confessed to and the injuries found on Wendy's body. When she did uh, eventually die, they, they did the medical reports and that, they found she'd been hit seven or eight times severely with lacerations. She'd also been um, choked, she'd also been uh, kicked, and, and probably with, with sort of winkle pickers, you know, sharper shoes in those days, which, like teddy boys type things that wore. Was Stephen wearing winkle pickers? He was wearing uh, steel toe-capped, uh, heavy-duty work boots. Now, they would have made a, a heck of a difference if you'd been kicked with that, yeah. rather than a, a shoe, a soft shoe winkle picker. But the marks seemed to be quite clearly shown that it was more of a shoe than it was a boot. Downing's statement never mentioned anything about any strangulation, any uh, kicking. You know, there was no kicking mentioned at all on that. Because, again, the police wouldn't have known at that stage, when he was first interviewed, the extent of the injuries to to, uh, to Wendy Saw. So it was only afterwards um, that they realised that. But they didn't go back to him and, and you know, re-challenge him or ask him to, to do that. I think, you know, because they probably realised they'd missed that opportunity then. If they went back and said, you know, tell us about the what shoes you're wearing and they realised you're wearing boots and different factors would have come in, it would have started to pick holes in their in their statement, in the confession. And the confession didn't really match any of the known facts. You know, my argument's always been is that once the pathology report was done two or three days later, the police must have known that it didn't make sense and they probably got the wrong man. So Stephen, in this confession, uh, or let's say Stephen's mm. confession rather mm. than Stephen perhaps says that he, you know, he hit her a couple of times, two, yeah. two or three times, and then the... Not to down, so that he could undress her, basically. So making it more as a sexual assault, not mm. necessarily, a, a, you know, a, an attempted murder as such, 
um, it was more to knock her out so that she wouldn't know necessarily what to do and so he, he could undress her and sexually assault her. Now that's probably what came into their minds uh, at the first because you're talking of the workman finding, and well, Stephen finding originally, but then the workman coming to support it literally a minute or so later, that there's a half-naked woman uh, staggering around the cemetery covered in blood. And she was that badly injured that quite a few of the workmen couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman. Um, so you can tell how how bad the attack was. And um, this is where, you know, when the workman found her. So, I mean, Stephen was quite surprised to find that she'd moved from A to B. And it's never been explained. It was never brought out in court as to why he'd found her at one place and where the workman and him had found her 30 yards away just a, a minute or two later. You know, nothing was examined in detail about this scene of crime. Don argues that this discrepancy is because the police had made up a story framing Stephen before A, they knew it was a murder, and B, they knew the real extent of Wendy's injuries. But I can't help thinking that maybe if you had done it, maybe if you'd attacked and murdered somebody, that you'd lie and keep on lying. I mean, why not? What have you got to lose? Play it down. I hit her once, not eight times. And you keep on repeating and repeating and repeating it until you believe it. And if it isn't the truth, it becomes your truth. That's my thoughts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A brutal murder. A wrongful conviction. A 27-year fight for justice. Read the full story that inspired this podcast. In Murder in the Graveyard, investigative journalist Don Hale tells the story of his relentless fight to overturn the longest miscarriage of justice the UK has ever seen. Delve deeper into the case that shocked the nation. Murder in the Graveyard. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio narrated by author Don Hale himself. My name is Jackie Dunn. We're in Derbyshire Records office in Matlock. Back in 1994, Jackie was one of the young journalists who worked for Don at the local newspaper, the Matlock Mercury. I remember Don sent me up here to go and look at the microfiche of the Adobe Even Telegraph and um, the Mercury and Derbyshire Times about the case. Throughout our conversations, Don repeatedly told me about the crucial role that Jackie had played. But she consistently makes light of the importance of her role and of the insights that she got from being a female reporter in a male-dominated office. Friday, September the 21st, 1973. Youth in court today. Woman dies after attack in cemetery. I'm interested in how you kind of looked at the the, the Downing case. So you got a pile of papers, and well, did I you remember, go through the? Yeah, I remember. Well, Don did the research. He was the one who he did all the notes and and did all that. I sort of he would say, "Oh, would you want to have a look at this?" And I would sit there in the quiet if there was we weren't doing anything, and I would sit and read things. So I remember reading through quite a lot of. Of, um, I remember reading through the autopsy report and, and looking at the pictures of the crime scene and reading things about, you know, statements and things that people had said and stuff and, and sort of maybe would point out somebody had said, you know, and to be honest, I can't remember the details of no, any of it, but, no. you know, I did I did a lot of... Like, I would tidy up and put things in boxes of different things so that we didn't get lost. <laughs> and, and what... I mean, I can't imagine. Can you remember much about what you read? It was a very long time ago. But how did you? How do you feel? I was quite shocked at the way Wendy Sewell was portrayed. I think there was a lot of sort of assumptions about her. I think um, I remember reading things that had been saying she was a bit of a slut and she was promiscuous and things that actually, even then, twenty odd years ago, I was quite shocked that somebody would assume, you know, that if you've 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 had a few lovers. You're just a terrible person. But there was an element of that in a lot of the things I read, and some of the statements and things that she was judged. I think sometimes people had lost sight of the fact that she was a victim and she was somebody who died. And I I remember saying, you know, this a poor family and and things, you know, and and sort of in a way she was she was just 
sort of that was the event rather than thinking of her as a human being. I felt that she'd sort of been ignored in a way. Yes, I, yeah. that's that's the picture I've got, I've had yeah. as well. Um, um, and I've been trying to think about whether that's also me reacting to it as a woman. Yeah, and I mean, I did because I remember finding out that she'd been sexually assaulted and then um, there were some notes somewhere about that, that perhaps, you know, her clothes had been removed and things. And I remember saying, oh, well, who's done it then if it wasn't Stephen? And I remember sort of saying to Don, oh, I don't, you know... And I, I, I just thought that was sort of, in a way, her as a victim was overlooked in in a lot of things. And I mean, obviously, we were looking at it from the point of view of his conviction, and mm. I sort of pointed out that you know, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't she a wasn't, person. She wasn't <laughs> a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I, I felt deeply uncomfortable about the kind of matter of fact descriptions of her. And like, well, she did this, she did that, she was this person, and that's it. And no sort of, I don't know, a bit of humanity about her had been lost, you know. As I said at the start of the series, I want to make sure that we don't airbrush Wendy out of the story. So we'll be hearing about her in the next episode of Reporter. One of the key elements that Jackie scrutinised was the official scene of the crime and medical evidence. The Home Office that Jackie talks about is the British Government Department responsible for law and order. I remember the pictures of it and everything weren't very pleasant. And they were black and white, of course, because they didn't have colour pictures, I don't think. Yeah, there were pictures of the <clears throat> post-mortem and stuff. Yeah, there were some pictures of her, I think I saw. Yeah, or sort of the Home Office Christ. Yeah, stuff. I, I, I remember looking at some pictures, you know, because there were the pictures of a crime scene and things. And, um, mm, you know, obviously because she was in the pictures, so in some of them. Um, and, yeah, I remember being quite shocked by, by that because I'd never seen anything like that at the time, you know. Back in Wales, Don and I discussed the differences between Stephen's confession and the forensic evidence. So if the forensics contrasted with what he said, wouldn't that have meant that the, the, the prosecution case was unstable and therefore... Well, I would have thought so, and I think this is a great opportunity that was missed by the defence because he was never re-interviewed and never re-challenged about a number of aspects that happened once uh, the, the victim had died and other information was known, i.e. the kicking, the choking, um, and it was found later in the medical reports that um, she had put up a fight, that she had tried to defend herself and she got a broken shoulder. Now, Stephen made no mention that you know he'd... Uh, other than uh, in this confession, that he, he he just attacked her, knocked her down, and started to undress her. That she there's no mention that she put up a fight, and you know we we knew that she was quite a a strong person in the sense that she could have defended herself. I mean physically strong. Physically strong, yeah, and that she had um, judo training, so that she could possibly have defended herself. Now the police have argued that she was probably attacked from behind. You see, so she'd had no warning. Um, but if if she had no warning, how did she get defensive injuries in terms of a broken shoulder? It, that wasn't caused by the fall. That was caused uh, within the medical reports in terms of, you know, as a defensive injury, that she was trying to stop an attacker. Don also had issues with the scene of the crime. And I suppose that um, in 1973, that was, that was before DNA analysis. Oh, yeah, yeah. So they've even taken samples of, I suppose, if you've 
struck someone, they might have fingernail residue or... Well, there's a lot of issues even to this day about what was what was done. They, at first they said, no, they weren't taken. They, took, they certainly took Stephen's uh, fingernail scrapings and that. And then we later found out, yes, they had taken Wendy's fingernail scrapings, but there was nothing in there to link it to Downing and nothing in Downing's to link it to Wendy. So they weren't used. There was nothing to, to sort of corroborate that. He also feared that the crime scene was compromised. We found out... Um, through my own investigations, that there was a bobby left at the scene of crime for some time on the day of the attack. They then thought that they'd been forgotten, and probably were, went to the phone box to phone in to say, you know, what's going on, how long do you want me to stay, stop here? And this was getting into, to, you know, midnight-ish. And they were told, oh, yes, OK, sorry, mate, you know, bag everything up and come back to the bobby shop. Generally known as the police station. So it seems that everything was bagged up together, so possibility of cross-contamination, and taken back to the police station in Bakewell. Now, when Wendy died two, two or three days later, this then became, instead of a sort of a GBH, a serious assault, it became a murder. And although photographs were taken at the time, on time of the uh, initial attack, from what we understand with all the official reports, the... Uh, once it was a murder, they were taken back, returned to the scene of crime and replaced as near as damn it to the photographs, the black and white photographs they've got, trying to find exactly where this exhibit or you know, the pickaxe hand or whatever were, were replaced. So the, so the, uh, the items of, of evidence, the bits of clothing, mm. the weapons, etc., they were, they were carted away when it was just uh, in bracket, you know, yeah. a, a GBH, and then yeah. when it became more serious, were it was reconstructed yeah but was the reconstructed crime scene accurate now some exhibits were missing a key exhibit was was the 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 victim's tights and there were a couple of other items that there's a mystery a question mark over and it was said on the grapevine that some were taken as as uh as prizes by officers oh souvenirs yeah souvenirs um now that's never yeah it's never been fully established one way or the other but what we do know is that they weren't in the bag when they were returned to the scene of crime. I mean, that scene of crime was left then uh, for a couple of days at least, unguarded, unprotected. So there could have been crucial evidence at that scene of crime that's been ignored. Wow, that's a mess, how how many it? people have, have crossed that path? Dogs, people, humans, you know, it was a, it was a public cemetery. Um, the mind boggles to think, you know, what happened? The whole thing should have been roped off, taped off, mm. protected, uh, irrespective of whether it was a serious assault or a murder. And the original forensic officer involved with it never even went to the scene of crime. He did it from Nottingham, 25 miles away. The scene of crime wasn't sealed off, and he got all this poss- possibility of cross-contamination. So there was no way he could have secured a conviction, in theory, against Stephen or anybody else based on that evidence. Okay, so let's get back to the box of bloodstained clothes. If you, like me, are a bit of an armchair CSI, then you know that forensics are always a key part in any crime story. And, as we mentioned before, it was the physical evidence from the day that Wendy Saw was attacked that initially sparked Don Hale's interest in the case. As Don is very keen to stress, he is definitely not a blood expert, so I went to talk to somebody who is. 
My name is John Wright. I'm a senior forensic science lecturer at Derby University. Forensic science is a jigsaw. All it is is a jigsaw that you get in a clear plastic bag. You've got no idea what the picture is. You've got no idea how many pieces there are. You've got no idea what's missing. Until you start to put it together and you get the edge pieces and you get your shapes and your colours. And then as you put it together, you may not have a whole jigsaw. You may not have 100%, but you've got 60 to 70% of it. And you have to think, well, what's likely to be there? And that's where your scenarios and you put that to the to the jury and uh, ask them to think, is this what happened? Is this, you know, to our best of our ability, this is what we feel may have happened? Personally, I've been a forensic geek since I fell in love with Quincy's boat on TV when I was a kid. So I was very excited to visit the state-of-the-art crime scene house in Derby. This is where they train students of forensic science in real-life environments. The house is jam-packed with 360 CTV cameras and hidden microphones. Oh. And extremely lifelike body dummies. <laughs> Just met another of the houses and inhabitants I wasn't expecting. We're now standing in what was the bathroom. It's now a sealed wet room and we use it for blood pattern analysis. So within this room we can create scenarios, we can create patterns and look for and do, and do uh, scenario testing. For example, if, if somebody says, oh, this is what happened, then we can actually try and try it out and see what happened. We use sterile horse blood, which is perfectly safe. And then we've got wipe clean walls and a sealed floor and a shower unit in the corner. So we can actually wash it away and, and make sure that everything's clean and safe afterwards. I mean, that, that's one of the big things in this, this case, isn't it? About the blood splatter analysis. There, there, there is, yeah, the blood, blood splatter analysis. It's quite an opinionated science. It's quite an old science. Um, but there are various pointers towards amounts of force, uh, size of weapons, and how things have happened. But it, again, it's, it's an, it contributes to, uh, so it's, it's um, intelligence rather than actually uh, something that could convict somebody. So looking at how it's done and looking at the patterns, we can come up and say, we think this is what's happened, or mm. this is one way that we can put forward a scenario that this may have happened. Obviously, a defence or, or somebody else may put forward and say, it happened a completely different way. So it's just depending on the expert witness. Depending on the expert they will come up with how they think it's happened. Often they will be the same, but blood pattern analysis is quite difficult because you're looking at different sizes of stains, you're looking at stains to see whether they like air bubbles, i.e. they've come from the lungs and, and been coughed rather than from impact spatter. You get something called cast off, which comes from the end of the weapon when you hit it and gives you different kinds of patterns. If you imagine jumping into a puddle and you get water going everywhere, that's what happens with blood. If you hit into a, a a patch of blood you're going to get blood going in all sorts of directions different size staining and now we can use that to analyze we can work out where it's come from we can work out directionality we can give an idea of sort of velocities and forces used but it is only an idea no, it's not a measurable scale like a it's rule not, logo if you see this is no, the definitively no. this but we can say from so for example uh, if it's less if it's if the drops are about five millimeters or bigger normally it's somebody who's been hit with a, a fist or something if they're uh between five millimetres and one millimetre, it's probably a weapon, a bit more force. If they're less than a millimetre, there's quite a lot of force involved, uh, and it could even be a firearm. And if we get what's called misting, which looks like an aerosol spray of blood, then it probably is a firearm that's been used and caused the, the thing. So we can, we can mm. narrow it down, yeah. we narrow the field down, but we can't actually say what's happened. According to the police and prosecution, the minute blood spatters on Stephen's clothes came from him violently attacking Wendy. The Downing's version was that the blood was a result of Stephen trying to help the injured woman. 
kneeling in her blood as he tried to comfort, not kill her. OK, so there really wasn't very much blood on him, on the clothes. Is that is that possible if you've beaten somebody six or seven times over the head with a baseball bat? It really depends where you're standing and what's happening um, when you do it. When we, we generate blood patterns in, one of the reasons I ask students to generate scenarios rather than telling them how to make a pattern, I'll tell them this is what's happened, make it happen, because they'll then see... And it all depends where you're standing. Ah, oh, so you'll show them a picture of some blood splatter and go, can you recreate I, that? I, I, give them, I give them a scenario. Oh, so right. I'll say, Mr A's been beaten up uh, behind a nightclub. He was standing up. He slumped to the ground. He's sat there for a number of minutes. He's then crawled away and his assailant has, has walked out the scene. And then I'll, they'll do that and they'll come back to me and say, oh yeah, I've got blood all over my hands or blood all over my legs. Because they do it wearing a white scene suit, so it's quite easy for them to see. And it really helps them get an understanding of how blood moves. And blood is, is a strange thing. It, it does follow some patterns. Other patterns, it does almost. Ra- it seems to be almost randomly. You can read blood stains if you've got experience in what you're doing. Uh, I know I've looked at to many, many blood, blood, uh, blood stains things. I've trained people how to, to analyse them and what have you. And it, it's not going to be definitive evidence on its own. It just shows that a violent act has occurred you might be able to show where it's occurred. Now, if you've got it, the same blood on two people, and then that links the links them. But it doesn't necessarily link them at the time of the attack. It might be post-attack, because it could well be that that person went to help the other person and got blood on them because he was trying to help them. He did find the body. He found the victim. She was still alive, but she was badly injured. Um, he, th- he didn't know whether she was alive or dead or whatever. He felt for a pulse. Um, and it's it sort of shocked her. She she was she suddenly sat up in shock, shook her head violently, and he got some spots of blood on his on his t-shirt. He ran to get help, uh, which seems a natural thing to do. Really, went to the gatekeeper's uh, little house just inside the cemetery, which is probably I don't know a couple of hundred yards away from then. He ran back with the cemetery uh, attendant, um, and by that time the the van had arrived with his workmates, with about three or four workmates. One of the things about the, the forensic reports about this case is that they talk about the Stephen Downing nearly in congealed blood and that congealed blood reacting differently. Well, congealed blood, if, if someone's being bleeding for a while, there will be a pool of blood around them. And blood, uh, with the blood we use has had the clotting agents removed because we want to use it and continue to use it. Otherwise, we have to buy new bottles all yeah. the time. But human blood, animal blood has a clotting agent in it unless you are a haemophiliac, and therefore it will change state, so it will become thicker. Quite rapidly. Uh, uh, yes, it dries out. Yes, if you think how quickly you, if you yeah. cut yourself, how quickly you how quickly you, you heal. So it is, it depends how long it's been there, uh, and it will have a different appearance. It will have more, uh, more of a fibrinous appearance, and it will be more lumpy, as simple as that. There will be lumps in it, because the clotting factor is actually trying to, stop you bleeding and it, it does that by filling the hole it makes it lumpy it fills the hole and, and as a forensic scientist can you tell by because i think you know what, what one one of the points in one one of the scientist reports was you could tell this was congealing blood or congealed blood not fresh blood that can, was on clothing you can tell that by by the nature of how it's I said whether it's clotted and, and whether it's liquid or not what you can't tell and we're always asked is how long it's been there yes, right, okay. you cannot well there are some papers out there where they're starting to use uh, instrumental techniques and looking to try and see where they can actually age blood but currently mm-hmm. at the moment at crime scenes it's actually quite difficult to age blood it, it's a it's a difficult one the blood on Stephen's jeans showed that he'd knelt beside Wendy but there's no way to put a time on it. 
whether it's during the attack or moments or even minutes after it. But that's not the only issue that Don had with Stephen's clothes. The policeman and the PC ball and the ambulance man, um, Clyde Bateman, both have said that she was thrashing about in the ambulance, uh, trying to put people away that were trying to help her, really. And they were covered in blood. Their uniforms were covered in blood and had to be destroyed. So the, so the ambulance man and the policeman who were trying to help mm. her, both at the same time that Stephen had rolled her over, were drenched in blood, yet yeah. he was, had only ba- barely noticeable Yeah, marks. yeah. And, see, the argument at, at, at court was that um, whilst they pointed out these, these blood spots, tiny blood spots on Stephen's um, a T-shirt were, were, were there, they're only evident mainly through a microscope. And I've, I saw these. The family showed me these, you know, 20 years afterwards. And the only way I could actually identify that or even th- consider that they were blood spots because they got forensic markers around them to highlight them. Big sign saying blood spot. <laughs> Almost, yeah. It's like an arrow. This, you know, this, is, this is it. Um, and yet... You see, it was argued in court by the um, prosecution that she, you know she couldn't have thrashed about that much to get these tiny blood spots because apparently the harder you thrash about, the tinier the blood spots. Now, oh, really? so that was the sort of you know argument. So, it, it, I mean, he should have been in a theory after such a vicious attack, he would have been daubed in blood from head to foot, as were the policeman and the ambulance man. And really, I think the defence should have called both of these to explain the extent of blood staining and maybe even provided the uniforms as evidence to the jury. And all that was sort of what, you know, wiped away. It wasn't really discounted. I don't think the ambulance man was even called or considered. And uh, I know Ray and um, his lawyer were very dismayed that they weren't called. Um, but it, everything seemed to be very clipped in terms of mm. trying to avoid uh, giving impression that anybody else may be responsible Tell me about expert uh, witnesses, because at, at the original trial, there were there were two eyes over the forensic evidence. Prosecution and defence had different witnesses, and they came out with different readings of it, and the defence didn't put theirs forward, even though it, it seemed to exonerate the defendant. In the 1970s, the police held a lot of sway, uh, the professional organisation, and there was no real... There were no forensic science courses. There was no uh, forensic science accreditation, expert witness accreditation. There were no. There was. There's now a Chartered Society of Forensic Scientists. I think that was around, but it was in its infancy. There was no real way of saying that I'm a really good forensic scientist, apart from being a really good forensic scientist and being acknowledged as one. Uh, so peer acknowledgement. It was very hard to be a defence expert when the majority of forensic scientists, although they were independent and we were independent were employed by police forces or by the Home Office. So it's they will say one thing, somebody else will say something else. And until they um until we started to actually get accreditation, that wasn't until the nineteen nineties, two thousands, that we had some form of accreditation. Kind of against that the first thing they used to ask you in court what are your qualifications? So yes, yeah, so there was no regulation about who your expert witnesses were and people could have different Different backgrounds, um, and um, going to jump, jump around. So one one of the things that really shocks me is that the fact that the the Stephen Downing's family were given back his blood stained clothes from the day of the attack, um, whilst he was in prison. Um, is that was that common? In them? this was in again in the seventies. Yeah, in the seventies, quite often 
uh, stuff was returned, there was no real regulation about what happened to it. Nowadays, it would be either retained or destroyed. So there wasn't a regulation over, you had to keep it just in case it was challenged? Well, when I first started, we always told you keep stuff from murder, murder crimes for, for, for life. But he's been charged, he's gone to prison, and they've asked for it back. Well, in the police's eyes, they've got the person they, they want, or the person that was that carried out the crime. Therefore, in their eyes, case was closed. So, yeah, they were going to dispose of the clothing. It's one less item to store. But for Don, the case was only just beginning. The fact is, it had happened so close to home. The final spur was the witnesses, or rather, the lack of them. Literally within, you know, 100 yards of home sort of thing. Um, overlooked by all these houses. Lots of people um, you know, saw something or uh, couldn't have helped but see something, really. Witnesses coming on, lunchtime, a busy time. It was like Piccadilly Circus, you know. Don realised that there were many people who were around that day that might have seen something that hadn't even been spoken to by the police. It's time to conduct his own investigation. Wendy Sewell left a note for her boss saying that she was going for a breath of fresh air and walked out of the office in Bakewell on her final journey, which is the headline, where she worked as a clerk typist at about 12.40pm on Wednesday, September the 12th, 1973. She was seen walking up the butts past the kissing gate at 12.50pm. Butts is a quarry, isn't is it? Yeah, and, identi- and she was identified by several witnesses strolling along this route and into the cemetery. Stephen Downing, who was just finishing his lunch, also confirmed seeing her by the Garden of Remembrance and later as he walked out of the cemetery to exchange his pot bottle, recalled seeing her go behind the consecrated chapel. It is unclear as to whether she had a pre-arranged meeting with another person, but a witness who was approaching from the other end of the cemetery claimed Stephen was walking out of the gates and saw Wendy with her arms around a tall, ginger, fair-haired man behind the chapel. What is suggested is that minutes later she was attacked and found battered and crawling between gravestones by some small children before being discovered a few minutes later by Stephen Downing. In the initial... Uh, reports, both newspaper and court reports, she's described as, um, and I quote, attractive housewife, mm. Wendy Wendy Saul. Um, and in the court, how was she betrayed in court? It was a very well, nice um, picture. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was very much almost like the perfect marriage to a certain extent. Because it struck me, reading your book, that um, it's like you start asking questions mm. and the Bakewell rumour mill really starts <laughs> kind of kicking yeah, off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and suddenly everyone's got a theory about who did it. No. Um, and suddenly all these stories start coming out about Wendy, which you know obviously some of it's going to be just malicious, but some of it is. Mm-hmm. It's a very different picture from the. Well, word. it is. I mean, you know, the victim was was another aspect of the my investigation to look at. You know, but what was Wendy really like? You know, was she the perfect housewife? Was she the loving wife of David Sewell, etc.? You know, was everything happy? Uh, in the marriage, and quite clearly it wasn't. Who was the real Wendy Saul? Who was the real woman behind the lurid newspaper headlines and the image portrayed in court? And why might someone want to murder her in a graveyard at lunchtime on a sunny day in the country? Join me next time to find out. If you'd like to hear more about Wendy Saul's murder, 
and about Don Hale's fight to clear Stephen Downing's name, then please subscribe to this podcast. Search for Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or on your favourite podcast app. And you can delve deeper into the podcast itself by visiting our website, reporterpod.com. And please feel free to rate and review the series. Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard is presented and produced by me, Lucy Ditchmont. It's mixed by Dave Dodd. The music is composed and performed by Edwin Pearson. The executive producer is Matt Hall. And Reporter, Murder in the Graveyard is a Wireless Studios production. William Tyrrell was a three-year-old boy who disappeared from the township of Kendall on the New South Wales mid-north coast on 12 September 2014. Police have been told he was outside playing one minute and gone the next. His disappearance has become one of the most puzzling investigations in Australian history. It has been going on now for almost five years. Millions of dollars have been spent... The strike force at one point had 26 full-time detectives. Hundreds more around Australia have been exploring 600 possible suspects. And what has all that been for? William is still missing. My name is Caroline Overington. This investigation, Nowhere Child, is available now. To hear more, just search for Nowhere Child in your podcast app. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.